Open the Word of God, please, to Acts 17. Okay, so here we are. We're going to start Acts chapter 17. Now, as you know, the book of Acts is a long book. It's got 28 chapters. Um, and that's a lot of chapters. Romans only has 16. Philippians only has four. Jude, Obadiah, Second John, First John only has one chapter. So uh, we're looking at a book with 28 chapters, which is a lot. And also, I'm totally disoriented having Joe and Mike on the front row, but Macy decided you guys were going to sit there today. And she looked so adorable. There's no way I would have said no to her. For, she could have asked for anything. So I totally get it. So uh, they were talking about putting a spit guard up here a couple of months ago, so just beware of that, okay, if I get excited. But we got 28 chapters, in his, so we finished 16, and we're going to proceed through the book. And one of the challenges is remembering what we've already seen. And so we have this memory device, uh, Jesus is alive as head of his bride to help us. Because uh, Melvin, every one of those letters in that statement lines up with one of the chapters in the book of Acts. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And, and the bride of Christ, of course, is the New Testament church. Uh, the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel are not the same thing. Uh, two facets of the people of God. The New Testament church started on Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 and will continue to the rapture. So we've got a unique, unique position as church age saints, which is one reason we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the second hour today. There won't be any Lord's Supper after the second coming of Christ. We won't have the Lord's Supper. We'll have supper with, with the Lord, right? So let's review uh, what we've seen thus far in the first 16 chapters. In chapter 1, what happens of Acts? Jesus ascends to heaven. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he's resurrected. Forty days after that, he ascends to heaven, right? So Jesus ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, we have the establishment of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. What happens in chapter 3? A fellow who had been begging in front of the temple for decades is healed supernaturally by uh, uh, Peter and John. And that would have really been a final message to the Jerusalem uh, priests and those who frequented the temple. What happened in chapter 4? For the trouble, the apostles are arrested and basically told, don't talk about this anymore. And Peter says, hey, we can't stop. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So he said, we just can't. We're not going to shut it off. Uh, thank you very much. Chapter 5, you know what? Uh, the local church is a lot like Noah's Ark. A lot of times it's a big, stinky, smelly mess, but it's still the best thing afloat, Derek. Okay? And even in the apostolic church, sometimes people say, I want Tanglewood to be a New Testament church. And I always think, which one? You don't want it to be like Corinth, do you? <laughs> or Laodicea? Or even Jerusalem Bible Fellowship had sin in it. Uh, chapter 6, influence of devoted deacons. We had some issues about how to care for folks, and not everybody was getting all their buttons pushed. And so rather than being diverted from the big picture, the apostles said, let's have the deacons take care of it so we can keep all eight cylinders going. Chapter 7, we have the first uh, Christian martyr. Stephen is stoned to death for the faith. 
Today we're going to emphasize in Acts 17 that the good news is bad news to many people. And increasingly, it's becoming hate speech. And it's always been seen that way by some. And Stephen, by daring to believe and proclaim Jesus Christ, was considered to be so odious to the folks in Jerusalem, they killed him with rocks. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. That's a very difficult way to go. Well, why didn't God send an angel in there so the rocks would bounce off of him? Uh, you know, uh, by, Jesus says through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. In uh, Psalm 73, my favorite psalm, we read, My heart and my flesh will fail. That's one of those Bible verses that nobody wants to claim. But it happens. But we've got so much to look forward to beyond the now. The now is real and it's important, but it's not ultimate. It's only temporary. Acts chapter 8. We get outside of Jerusalem, abroad with Philip, another deacon. Uh, he testifies about Jesus to Samaritans. Now, no good religious guy in uh, Jerusalem would get anywhere near Samaria, but both Jesus and now Philip go right through the middle of it, preach Jesus to them. Philip does. They believe and they're saved, just like Jews were. And then in on the road uh, outside of Gaza, headed toward Ethiopia, what do we have? we got Philip interacting with a government official from the court of the Queen of Ethiopia, a black African, and he's reading Isaiah 53, which we're going to read a portion of at the beginning of the Lord's Supper, which is a prophecy, uh, Rabbi, from 700 B.C., all about Jesus and his first and second comings. And the, the Ethiopian says, hey, uh, who's the prophet talking about here, Philip? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And the account says, uh, Philip preached Jesus to him. He said, it's all about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And so we see Samaritans, religious outsiders, believe and be saved. We see people of different colors, cultures, believe and be saved. So this Church of Jesus Christ is bigger than the United States of America or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or Dallas Theological Seminary. It's a lot bigger. Um, Life comes to Saul in Acts chapter 9, a guy who was a professional Christian persecutor and really good at it, uh, sees the light, literally, and comes to faith, and we know him better as Paul. Chapter 10, uh, we see the gospel further penetrating through sociological barriers because God tells Peter, who's a good Jewish kid, it's okay to eat ham sandwiches now if he wants to. It's okay to have dinner with Gentiles if you want to. And then he's called to go to Cornelius' household in Caesarea, one of the most beautiful places you visit in Israel, Caesarea, on the Mediterranean. And uh, Peter just begins to tell them about who Jesus is, and they all believe, which kind of blew it by his categories, so that in chapter 11, Peter had to verify, yes, we told the Gentiles about Jesus, and we didn't say, hey, Gentile, you got to become a Jew first before you can believe in the Jewish Messiah. We just told them about Jesus. They believed and got saved. And that's what happened. So that's a mind-blowing truth. Chapter 12. We saw that Philip, uh, uh, Stephen was the first martyr, the first apostle uh, to be murdered, to be martyred, was James, the brother of John. And uh, I just really, really, really like John for some reason. He's probably my favorite Bible character, second to the Lord Jesus himself. But, you know, James, Peter, James, and John were the three closest to Jesus. Uh, and yet James is the first one to get whacked by the bad guys. 
And ironically, his brother John is the last apostle to die. But uh, James is executed in Jerusalem. And then they, they arrest Peter thinking they're going to do the same thing to him. And what happens? God supernaturally delivers Peter. And I've often thought, what does Salome think, the mother of James? Hey, Lord, you know, uh, they arrested my little boy and we had a prayer meeting and they killed him the next day. And then they arrested Peter and we had a prayer meeting and you supernaturally delivered him. And I think she figured out eventually that God's purposes for Peter were different than God's purposes for James. And that's just the way it is. You've got to kind of play the cards you're dealt and uh, do it with gladness and not compare yourself to everybody else because it's really going to wrap you out of shape if you do that. Um, all right, that's chapter 12. Chapter 13 and 14 describe the first missionary journey. The church in Antioch and Syria send out Paul and Barnabas and Mark, and they go across into the island of Cyprus, preach the gospel. Then they go into modern-day Turkey. John Mark decides he's get, he, he wants to discontinue helping, so he goes home to mom in Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas start the Galatian churches and the synagogues in response to Paul and Barnabas preaching Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, nothing dangerous. Um, attack Paul and Barnabas. So that's the first 13 chapters. What happens, uh, 14 chapters. What happens in chapter 15? This issue about, is it really possible for Gentiles, non-Jews, to believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved by faith alone is still bubbling up in the church and not everybody's understanding it. So the apostles get together and say, let's hammer this out and make sure we're all on the same page and make sure everybody un understands this. So we have that heresy corrected. Christianity is not a sect of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. Okay, It trumps Judaism in that sense. Now what happened in the aftermath of the Jerusalem Council? What happened in the aftermath of the heresy being corrected, Aubrey, was Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and Paul says, let's go back and revisit the folks we visited during the first missionary journey. And Barnabas says, let's go. But by the way, let's give Mark another shot at it. You know, the guy who bailed out, the guy who quit, Mark, who wrote a book of the Bible. What book of the Bible did Mark write? You remember that? Yeah, he wrote Colossians, obviously, right? Now, he wrote the Gospel of Mark eventually. But we saw that honest agreement. Christians can sometimes disagree on certain judgment calls like that. And you got to play nice, and you hate each other, and you don't destroy each other, but you just agree to live based on your conviction. So what happens is, uh, Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus, and then across North Africa, Paul and Silas leave Antioch, revisit the Galatian churches, and eventually end up in Europe, which is where we are now in the second missionary journey. We see Europe evangelized. Jesus is alive as head, H-E-A-D. Uh, and today we're going to see in chapter 17 antagonism toward the gospel in Thessalonica, acceptance of the gospel in Berea, and then next week, Lord willing, apathy toward the gospel, second missionary journey in uh, in Athens. And just to finish head of, uh, we've got disciples in Corinth. You think uh, Las Vegas is bad? Las Vegas is nothing compared to ancient Corinth. They had every possible perversion you could have uh, under the sun in open air, and the government was paying for it. Well, come think of it, we kind of do that today too. But uh, 
so there aren't that many differences, I guess. But uh, in context, it's amazing that the folks in Corinth would, so many of them, even though they had a pretty dysfunctional church afterwards, uh, offense of the gospel, farewell to the Ephesian elders. So we're going to be in chapter 17 today. Look at the first 15 verses. And we're going to emphasize that the good news of the gospel is, in fact, bad news to a lot of people. And we can't give the enemy the element of surprise. We should almost expect that. And maybe that will make us appreciate more how God actually works to, to save those who believe. But that's where we're going to go. We're actually going to, thes- we're going to go uh, from Philippi to Thessalonica and Berea today. But first, let's uh, pray for teachability and troops, okay? Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this first day of a new week you're giving us. And we praise you for that as a gift. Uh, and, and it's a potential to be used to your glory. Uh, we pray, Father, that uh, you'd bless us and empower us as the first significant thing we do on this first day of a new week is to get together with believers of like faith and practice to worship and to study and to pray and to fellowship and to revel in the gospel. And I pray you'd be glorified and pleased by that. And not just on this street corner, but all over our community, our county, our state, our nation, in this world. We praise you. You're bringing 80,000 people a day into the New Testament church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, Father, for those who protect and serve us, whether they be uh, local peace officers, firefighters. We thank you for them, their commitment. We pray especially for those who are believers, for them to be strong in the faith and for your direction and empowerment for them and their families. And we pray for our active military, including wonderful folks like uh, uh, the Moors who uh, serve you by serving the country. And we thank you for somebody like David, who's truly salt and light in his unit and in his army. And we pray your blessing on them now and as you lead them into uh, possibly bigger and better things into the future. We pray your blessing on all of them and so many like them. We thank you for their service. We pray for those who formulate missions and targets for wisdom and for uh, common sense to prevail. And we have enemies out there that uh, need to be dealt with in uh, a proper manner. And I pray we would have the uh, courage in our leadership to make those kind of decisions because I know that uh, the tool is there and I pray we might have the courage and the uh, discernment to use it according to your uh, purposes and glory, we pray. Uh, thank you for each one who's here. I pray that we can be edified as the Holy Spirit is our teacher as he illumines the text to us, we might believe and understand it and apply it in our lives and hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, the context for our passage, today it's Acts 17, 1-15, is the second missionary journey. second missionary journey starts in Antioch Bible Fellowship in the city of Antioch of Syria. And as we say, Paul and Silas go overland, whereas Barnabas goes into Cyprus with Mark. They go overland and they revisit the Galatian churches. In Lystra, they pick up a new helper, Timothy. Uh, Paul's intent apparently was to go into Ephesus or maybe to go to Bithynia, but God closes those doors. They end up in Troas and eventually into Europe. And last week we saw Paul and the team, along with Luke, 
So we had four people in Philippi. Uh, Luke stays in Philippi when they leave it. But um, we saw the four guys preaching the gospel in Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas as the front men being arrested uh, and eventually being able to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. Remember that? Acts 16.30, what must I do to be saved? They, The jailer asked, what was the answer? Remember? Shannon, it was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And everybody in your house can be saved, but they'll believe too. Little kids, women, doesn't matter. Uh, the gospel transcends all those things. So anyway, we're going to move from Philippi this morning, where we were last week, uh, to Thessalonica and Berea. He'll move to those other cities, but he's focusing on the big cities uh, first and going from there. Okay, And here's what we'll see in our passage. The good news is bad news to many. First, in verses 1 through 3, after leaving Philippi, Paul preaches Christ in the synagogue there in Thessalonica. He always starts with the synagogue because they got the Old Testament scriptures, so you've got scripture to preach about the Christ. In verses 4 through 9, we see different people display wildly different reactions to the gospel. The good news is bad news to many people. As precious as it is to us, it is infuriating to some. And then verses 10 through 15 For their own safety, Paul and Silas were sent down the road from Thessalonica to Berea and ultimately to Athens. Okay, so let's read verses 1 through 3. After leaving Philippi, Paul preaches, speaks about Christ in the Jewish synagogue in the city of Thessalonica. Now, uh, drop back to verse 40. Uh, Paul and Silas are let out of prison. They go visit Lydia, who had been their patron there. And when they saw the other believers, they encouraged them, Paul and Silas did, and they left Philippi, and they headed down the road about a 100 miles to Thessalonica. They went through Amphibolus and Apollonia on the way, but he's he's wanting to get to Thessalonica. So when they had traveled through Amphibolus and Apollonia, I can say that under pressure, uh, not very well. Uh, they came to Thessalonica. I can't say that, and I can't spell it too. Uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jew, Jews, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. So where did Paul go initially to interact with folks about the Christ at Philippi? Went down by the riverside. Where you get that song? Down by the riverside, right? It was because that's what happened in Philippi. There wasn't a synagogue. So he went down there and found a small group of God-fearers wanting to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, we got a synagogue where folks meet on Saturday to hear the, the Scripture taught, Old Testament, and to pray and to sing. So he goes there, and what does he do? And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, to the Jews in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, they meet on the Sabbath day, the Saturday Sabbath, Reason with them from the scriptures. So he kind of took out Matthew, Mark, and Luke and said, right here in the gospels, it's all about Jesus, right? There wasn't no gospels yet. The gospels haven't been written yet. He went to places like Isaiah 53, passages like that. He said, hey, this, this Christ is in fact Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, that's not his last name, it's the title, meaning the anointed one, the savior, the Messiah, He's going to take care of the sin problem and eventually turn the world totally around according to God's program at what we would call the second advent, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That wasn't a mistake. 
That was the plan. The lamb first, the lion later. This Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Wow. If we go from that map of the second missionary journey with the the labels from that time, Joe, to a modern map of Greece, let me show you where we end up. Thessalonica is right there. Uh, There's Athens. Is Athens a real city, Homer? Is that a real place? Can you, like, go on an airplane? That's the airplane we flew in, right there. That's a representation of the very airplane. We landed there and got out and eventually looked around the Parthenon. It's a real place, yeah. So uh, this is a map with the modern labels on it, right? But Thessalonica is uh, was and still is right there. Uh, they usually call it Salonika now, but that's uh, also it's called Thessaloniki. But notice it's it's in the heart of a natural port. It's beautiful harbor, and it looks across to Mount Olympus, Joe. Now, according to the ancient Greeks, where did the gods live? Lowercase g. Where did Zeus live? Las Vegas? Who said that? No, he didn't live in Las Vegas. He lived on Mount Olympus. And you could see on a clear day, you still can. You can, Solomon, look at this. You can be standing, sitting, you know, riding in the port of Thessaloniki and look across and there's Mount Olympus. Boom. So the church in Thessalonica ministered in the shadow of Mount Olympus, literally. So pretty, pretty wild. Now let's define a couple of terms. We know that when Paul is preaching Christ, he's preaching the gospel. The word gospel, as Melvin will tell you, means good news. And that, that's what it means, right, Melvin? And that's because the Greek term euangelion means good news, good message, good information. Uh, specifically, the gospel of Jesus is the good news about who he is and what he did. In the gospel, God has done for us something Connie could never do for herself. Because he who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, the God-man Savior, his righteous life, his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, paying for the sins of the world on the cross, validated by his literal bodily supernatural resurrection from the dead, such that Jesus Christ is the issue and he's also the issuer, the giver of eternal life. Now, the gospel is as simple as this. Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's how Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die. And Jesus says, you know, in the Gospel of John, if you don't believe I'm he, you will die in your sins. Which means if you do believe he's the Messiah and trust in him, guess what? You won't die in your sins. Isn't that, that's good news, Russell. You're not going to die in your sins because that payment has been put to your account through faith in Jesus. Nothing you did, meritorious, but through simple faith. Really, simple faith is not all that simple, is it? However, a dead Savior, Buddha, Muhammad, etc., can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Jesus can because he's resurrected, and he's the only one who's been resurrected. Now, look back at chapter 17, verse 3. In this context, he's preaching the gospel about Jesus by explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again and saying Jesus is the Christ. So what does the term Christ mean? Now, you guys know this, I think. 
But a lot of Americans realize at Christmas time, uh, they think Christ is his last name. You know, Mary, Christ, Joseph, Christ, and Jesus Christ, you know? And it's not his last name, it's his exalted title. That's the Greek form of it. Uh, the Hebrew is uh, Meshua, that's Christos, but it goes back to Psalm 2, which is uh, a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah, and it literally means the anointed one, the one appointed by God to take care of the sin problem and eventually to set up a kingdom on the earth the way God wants it to look. Jesus is the Christ because he's the one the Old Testament promise, promised would be sent by God to be the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. Okay. Now we'll look at this. The Bible's a big book, Fran. 66 books in it, but it only has two parts. What's the first part called? Old Testament. What's the second part called? New Testament. All of the Old Testament books, Harmony, were written before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has one major premise. All human beings are sinners. I mean, we're just no darn good. We leak oil, every single one of us. And we all die, with a couple of miraculous exceptions. I know about Enoch and Elijah, but 99.9999999999% die. And you're, you're in that category, just so you'll know. Um, that's one major premise. Now, what was the one major promise? God's sending the Christ. The Christ is coming. Hold on. Uh, and we read in the Old Testament about one Messiah, who's going to have two advents. When you look at the Old Testament passages about the Christ, hold your place, go to 1 Peter 1. This is something that was discussed. This was something that was variously understood. But uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. One Savior, two advents. One person, two natures. Fully God, fully man. First uh, Peter one ten. Peter, no less than Peter, says, "As to this salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, the prophets, the Old Testament writers who prophesied of the grace that would come to our generation in the person of Christ, uh, made careful searches and inquiries in the Scripture. They're looking for answers by comparing Scripture to Scripture, Old Testament Scripture." seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating in their own writings as the Old Testament Scriptures inspired by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, predicted what He was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ, let's call those the Lamb passages, and the glories to follow. Let's call those the Lion passages, okay? One Savior, two Advents, two functions. He comes as a lamb to be a sacrifice. The Passover lamb. The analogy of the Day of Atonement. Uh, a sacrifice that's uh, substitutionary and uh, propitious uh, for the nation Israel or here for the whole world. So there's a whole set of prophecies that talk about a suffering Messiah. That's his first Advent. There's also a set of passages that talk about a reigning Messiah. Psalm 2 emphasizes that the Messiah is going to come down out of heaven and stop human history on God's terms. Did that happen during the first advent? We didn't overthrow the Roman Empire, did we? In fact, what did he say about the Roman Empire, basically? 
render unto God what's God under Caesar's what's Caesar's, right? So that's very important to realize. Peter's saying, I, I get that. I get that you can read these passages and say it didn't happen. So Jesus can't be the Christ. You're not correlating Scripture accurately. He's the, the cross comes before the crown. The lamb comes before the lion. And that's true for us in a small way, too. Through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom of God. Uh, if you identify with this good news, you're going to have to deal with people who think it's bad news. And that's just the way it is. So, very interesting. Go back to uh, chapter 17 of Acts. We've got Paul going to a synagogue, taking Old Testament scriptures and emphasizing that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who will return as a lion, but that he's the issue, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior. Now realize, the, the amazing, blind, uh, uh, mind-blowing truth that the first generation church is trying to understand themselves and get out to the world is, yeah, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Savior of the whole wide world. And, of course, as Luther said, the gospel in a verse found in John 3.16, for God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world, not just loved Israel, loved the world, Jew and Gentile, religious, irreligious, black, white, yellow, all lives matter. God the Father loved the world so much he gave the Messiah. He gave the God-man Savior, the second person of the Trinity, takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity, the God-man, perfect life, perfect sacrifice, complete, total, supernatural resurrection, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. And the Greek, as you know, is more specific, that all the ones who believe. It's not whosoever, it's that all the ones. It's an articular present active participle, that all of the ones who believe. Are you in the set of the believers? Today can be the day of salvation, if you'll trust in Jesus Christ. Let's go to verses 4 through 9. After leaving Philippi, Paul speaks about Christ to the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, and now we're going to see that people have wildly different reactions to that good news, because the good news is bad news to a lot of people. Uh, first, we've got a guy, we kind of have good news about some people's reaction to the good news, Sonia, verse 4. Then we have bad news about some people's reaction to the good news. Verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 4. And you know what? Paul preached Christ for three Sabbaths, and some of them were persuaded. Uh, Some theologians say, you shouldn't try to persuade anybody. Just whisper, you know, just kind of whistle just as I am, and the elect will walk the aisle. You know, that's not the way it works, folks. (laughs) That's... uh, more complicated than that. Some of them, doesn't mean all of them, but some of them in the synagogue uh, were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. So they believed in Christ and they you know, connected with them because they're preaching Christ. Uh, along with not just Jewish folks that were physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also some of the locals that were God-fears, that is non-Jewish folks that went to the synagogue wanted to know more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and that could be along with a number of leading women. Do you notice that Luke, the human author of Acts, emphasizes that women from the get-go were a major part of the church. The, the folks, the 120 who are praying in, in uh, the aftermath of the ascension were told a lot of women there. Okay, and the church uh, counterculturally affirmed the ontological equality of Meg to Doug, right? 
or Ron to Connie or Homer to, to Pam. Now wait there. She's a lot better than he is. So, you know, just so you'll know, but, uh, we love him anyway, right? Um, yeah, the, the, the ontological equality, even though we have different roles, I mean, God has come up with this plan, this amazing way you're able to produce babies. It's really interesting, but we won't go into gynecological details today. We're all big kids. We know some of that stuff. But only the women can have babies. Somebody said if men were the ones having babies, all families would only have one baby. But uh, you guys are tough. I, I, I greatly admire all women, especially those who have had babies. And i got to tell you, I was born at a very young age, very close to my mother at the time, so I totally appreciate that. But here's the good news about preaching the good news. Some of them believed, and it was ethnic Jews, and it was Gentiles who were going to synagogue to find out more about the true God, and they believed and got saved. And that group includes a lot of leading women, people who were powerful socially and had some funding and were well-respected, and they're coming to faith in Christ uh, right there in Thessalonica. That's great. That's really good, Harmony, to know. That's one verse, Carla. That's one verse. Now, the rest of the verses here in this section, right, uh, verses 5 through 9, it's all about the bad news, about the good news. Because the good news is bad news to a lot of people. Look at verse 5. But the Jews in, at large, most of the Jews in the synagogue, the, the ethnic Jews, uh, becoming jealous, who they didn't believe that Jesus was Christ, they became jealous because they're seeing some people respond to Paul and Silas. Uh, and they took along some wicked men. Now, the first edition of the King James put, took along some lewd fellows. And, I, you know, I can remember like a little kid saying, well, what does lewd mean? You know, which uh, you're, you're 10 years old, they don't want to tell you that when it's like 1962. They don't talk about stuff like that. But they took along some lewd fellows from the marketplace, and they formed a mob. You've got outside instigators getting the have-nots upset Go out there and let's burn and pillage a little bit so everybody can know how pitiful we are. And they set the city in an uproar. Can you say Ferguson, Missouri? If you analyze that, you know, you had an unfortunate situation where it turned out there wasn't hands up, don't shoot. This guy rushed this police officer. He just strong-armed the ethnic guy at a convenience store and threatened to you know, beat him to a pulp. So he rubbed that thing. He had a rap sheet this long, goes you know, to a police officer, he's asked, he fits the description, police officer wants him to stop, he kind of bull rushes him, gets in the police car, tries to get his gun, the guy saves his life, the Justice Department, which condemned him publicly when they heard about it, came and investigated it with like 500 FBI agents, said it's totally true, he did nothing wrong, the uh, grand jury included many black people, said it's true, the police officer did nothing wrong, his life is now destroyed. And we had uh, a situation where the mayor said, "Well, let them burn a couple of blocks. You know, why not? It wasn't the neighbor. It wasn't the block she lived on. But outside instigators, as it turned out, was what really got this this going. And you've always got that. You've always got people that are dissatisfied, but kind of just trying to make it work. And then somebody tells them how pitiful they are. And I found out as a soccer coach, uh, you know what? There are some kids, even at four years old." who will run after a ball and miss it in a game, and because it's embarrassing, they'll all kind of go, oh, oh, my leg, my leg, oh my gosh, my leg. And they go, you know, and mom, of course, wants to take him to the ER, get the helicopter, and you look at it, there's nothing wrong, and you can't, so he limps to the bench and sits down, and you say, you know, and the game goes on, and then everybody's having fun again, and within three minutes, he's like, hey coach, I want to go back in, I thought you broke your leg, no, it's fine, it's fine, yeah. Uh, some people, you tell them how pitiful, so, 
you know, I wasn't one of those who'd go over and just baby them. Now, now that could be bad. You know, if somebody had like a compound fracture, of course. If somebody's bleeding out of the mouth, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of them. But when the average kid swings and misses and then kind of, you know, oh, 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 you know, I'm like, oh, Jimmy, that's pitiful. Come on over here, you know, let's stop the game. Let's, uh, you know, you, if you, if you, if you encourage that, you get more of it, okay? If you just, okay, go ahead, you're out, boom. I'd make them set up the whole quarter so they feel the pain, you know, not playing. That's just it. And so adults are like that too, you know. You get one student who's convinced Dr. McCoy is Dr. Doom. Some semesters, a year ago, last fall, I became the worst speech teacher in history. After consistently getting good reviews from the students, I got terrible reviews one semester because... Two people who work at an establishment in town, I won't tell you, but every time I go in there, they kind of glare at me, who totally underachieved, didn't apply the clear objective principles we were trying to have all the students do. They didn't want to do that. They still wanted to make an A because they were cheerleaders and they were cute. So, And they liked getting in front of the crowd and giving speeches, and everybody digged me. I have no outline. I have no point. I have no central idea, I have no specific purpose, I have no content, but dig me, I'm a cheerleader. There's nothing wrong with cheerleaders, Kristen. Some of my best friends are cheerleaders, okay? But I had a semester where two gals convinced everybody I was a jerk, which actually wasn't that hard for them to do, but it had never happened that bad before. And then I said, wow, man, this is a mission field. Then the next semester is back to normal, you know. Three of them hated me. Three of them loved me. Everybody else thought I was okay. You know, that's the way it usually works after a semester. So that's the way it is. But yeah, this is outside instigators in a sense. These rich folks in the synagogue who don't believe in Jesus and are jealous that Paul and Silas are actually stimulating some vitality among some who formerly were synagogue members. They kind of probably grease the palm of some lewd fellows and these people go out and start a riot. They start rioting and set the city in an uproar. Uh, and they were attacking the house of Jason because that's apparently where Paul and Silas were staying. So they, the mob goes to where uh, Paul and Silas are staying with the intent of dragging them out of the house and beating them up and maybe even killing them. I think you do have a Class B miracle here in the sense that Paul and Barnabas were probably out Side the major downtown section that afternoon doing evangelism or whatever they were doing. Uh, so, so when the mob hit Jason's house, which is where they're staying, uh, Paul and Barnabas weren't there, verse 6. But when they did not find them, Paul and Barnabas, they began dragging Jason and some of the other new believers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world, meaning, excuse me, Paul and uh, Silas, that's a little bit of hyperbole there, but these people that are just ruining our culture because they have the good news of the gospel, which is bad news to us, they've come here now, and Jason, one of our homeboys here in Thessalonica, has welcomed them. He likes these people, Paul and Silas. And they all act contrary to the, to the decrees of Caesar, <clears throat> saying there's another King Jesus. That's interesting. The kingship of Jesus isn't the first coming. It's connected with the second coming. And when Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians, it's obvious he's told the Thessalonians a lot about the second coming. So that's they're hearing a distorted version of that. They're not hearing that Jesus said, "Render under God what's God and Caesar's under Caesar." They're not subject. The Christians are not saying let's uh, uh, format civil disobedience here. But that's kind of the version. And Philippi was a free city. You know what that means? 
didn't have to pay Roman taxes, and they did not garrison any Roman soldiers, which was a relief, not being under their thumb when you're Greek and no Roman soldiers to kind of kick you around. But the idea was, man, if we get if anything goes back to Rome that we've, we're promoting another king, we won't be a free city anymore. They'll, they'll bring the you know 82nd Airborne on top of us. So there, those kind of reasons that are motivating this overreaction. Verse 8, so they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge, some, some type of bond from Jason and the others, they're probably pretty expensive, they released them. So they've been arrested, the locals, probably not a felony charge, but the idea was you're going to pay out the nose because you've been friendly with Paul and Silas and they need to go, sooner the better. So that's kind of what happens there. Now, Look at verses 10 through 15. Paul and Silas are going to have to leave town for their own safety, and they end up going down the road. So the brethren immediately find Paul and Silas and say, you got to go, like now, or it's going to get bad and they'll probably kill you. Uh, so they send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which is about 40 or 50 miles down the road. And when they arrived, guess what Paul does? He decides to take a couple weeks off because he's been so traumatized by the fact some people don't like him. Now, what he does is he goes from Thessalonica to Berea and does the same thing again. Now, watch this. You might think, why didn't God just send an angel to wipe out the mob or a pillar of fire to scare the mob? You know, you're not seeing a lot of class A miracles in this passage, even in the era of the apostles where these guys are able to do some of that themselves, according to God's will. Even in that period, you're not seeing a miracle every five minutes. The idea that everybody in the Bible sees miracles every five minutes, and we don't, so we can't believe that, or we are not claiming it enough, is not biblical. Uh, these guys, remember what happened to Paul in the city of Lystra during the first missionary journey? What happened to him? Same thing that happened to Stephen. What happened to Stephen? He was stoned. They dragged Paul out of town and left him for dead. And in my opinion, he was dead, but God resuscitated him. But maybe he was just badly damaged, but it left scars. And he talks about it later in some of his letters. So just notice the absence of kind of name it, claim it, supernatural miracles to take away your problems here. He, they're dealing with problems. When you read First Thessalonians, he says, We've wanted to come back to Thessalonica more than once, but Satan has hindered us. They've got all kinds of issues. They can't go back there. So when you get lemons, what do you do? Make lemonade, right? That's exactly what what they do. And he knows he's doing the right thing. Uh, you know, TBF goes like this. You know, we, we kind of have a glass ceiling and a glass bottom, but we keep doing Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, world missions, focus on... Biblical communion, a lot of grace, uh, baptism technique. How do I get along with somebody slimy like Stephen Janus? Man, it's not easy. I gotta hold, I gotta use the baptism technique. I gotta hold my nose and lean way over backward to get along with people like that. Everybody else is easy to get along with, but those two, very difficult, you know? So that's what you do. And that's what Paul does here, isn't it? He just goes down the road. Look at verse 11, uh, verse 10 again. Brethren sent him out of town. That night, you can't wait. Gotta get out of there. When they arrived in Berea, what they do? Take a couple weeks off to de-stress? No, they went right into the synagogue of the Jews the next Saturday. Now, verse 11, here's the good news. They, these, that is the folks in the synagogue in Berea, 
were no, more noble-minded, more open-minded in a good sense than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. They don't all believe, but they're all open to compare Paul's claims about Jesus with the Old Testament scriptures. They received the word of Paul about Jesus with great eagerness, and they checked it out. They double-checked with the scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. Uh, a lot of times people use the Bereans as an example of what Christians should do when they hear people like me tell you what the Bible means. And I think you need to check Scripture in context to make sure any preacher, including me, is telling you the truth. Right, Doug? But the Berean example, David, isn't Christians. This is unbelievers in a synagogue comparing what Paul's saying to the Scripture. This is not believers doing that. That's unbelievers. And again, I think there's an analogy there, and I'm all for the principle, but it doesn't really come out of that passage. It would come from, you know, be careful to... Uh, rightly divide the word of truth and be a good student of scripture, that kind of thing. But the point is, in the Philippian, uh, excuse me, in the, Thessalonica, in the Thessalonican synagogue, from the get-go, there were some who didn't want to believe, who really weren't open to what Paul was saying. But everybody in the Berean synagogue, at least initially, are willing to listen and say, hey, maybe, maybe Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, because of the openness of a hundred percent, of the synagogue, many of them, a good many of them, believed. And again, Luke, who emphasizes women in his gospel and in the book of Acts, he's not making this stuff up, but just emphasizing that the Christian movement includes everybody, including women, which was countercultural in that day for both the Jewish and Roman culture. They thought women were inferior. Um, uh, those who believed include a number of prominent Greek women. And he puts the women first. And men. But, guess what, Carla? The good news is bad news to many. Look what happens here. But, when the Jews of Thessalonica, now who, what are we talking about? We were in Thessalonica and went to Berea. Right? When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that down the road, in Berea, the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, just like he had done it in their town, they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds. What do we say about outside instigators stirring up the crowd? Ferguson, Missouri, inner city of Baltimore, that kind of thing. Same thing. Everybody's happy in Berea. Even the unbelieving Jews are okay with Paul preaching Jesus. They just disagree with him. But then they come into town from Thessalonica and say, this guy's a bad dude. You know, we got to uh, violently take care of him. So they came in and they were agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren, the Christians there in Berea, sent Paul out as far as the sea. So guess what? This is a crisis situation, just as bad as Thessalonica, because I don't think they would have encouraged Paul to get to the coast and make his way to Athens unless they thought it was life or death. And again, no angels, no voices, no pillars of fire to scare the bad guys off. Paul just has to kind of leave town pronto to avoid the bad news. So then immediately the brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remain there. They're lower profile. The crowds really don't know who they are yet. Now, those who escorted Paul from Berea out of town to the seacoast to blend in with the crowds there so they, the bad guys couldn't find them and beat them up and kill them, they escorted him as far as where? Athens. So notice this week we saw uh, antagonism to the gospel in Thessalonica. Some believed, but there was really violent antagonism. Then we have acceptance 
to the preaching at least by the whole town in Berea. And next week we're going to see, Lord willing, uh, apathy. You know, apathy is much worse than antagonism. At least, and, and you know, your your enemies at least have thought through the implications of what you're saying and thought it was so worthwhile they needed to reject it. You know, apathy is just saying, I don't care what you say. It's not important. It doesn't matter. And I think Americans generally, with many exceptions, are becoming more and more apathetic about claims of absolute truth, generally, much less of the gospel. So what are we seeing here in this passage? Well, we're seeing the good news is bad news to many, not to everybody. So what does that mean to us? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because i got a PowerPoint slide that's going to help deal with that. Number one, we should expect opposition when we identify with Christ. Uh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You ever heard those those words? Guess what? That sweet, sweet sound is bitter to some people. As precious as when you think about when you first came to faith and how wonderful it was and how much you love the Lord Jesus, people hate him and us just that much. Just because we believe. That's all. You know what? Christians are not going to go into some hotel in Africa owned by Americans frequented by Westerners and get uh, high-powered weapons and round people up and say, if you can quote John 3.16, we might let you go. Otherwise, you're deadsville. You know, Christians don't do that. Methodists don't do that. Presbyterians don't do that. Not even Baptists do that. They'll do anything but that. You know, they won't do stuff like that. Uh, we've got real opposition, and it's not just ontological atheists. It's uh, existential atheists, I should say. It's... Uh, uh, major world religious systems that oppose our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first received? And then when when you got what baptized a week later, Ron, they called you Donnie or Lonnie or little Lonnie is going to get baptized. The guy who baptized didn't know him and said, "What's your name?" And he said, "Ronnie." And the guy said, "What was it, Donnie? Arnie?" Arnie, well, that's better because Arnold Palmer. That's the only time you've been identified with Arnold Palmer. Your golf swing, just so you'll know. But, uh, yeah, uh, that means that uh, we need to kind of get over the fact that some people aren't going to applaud. You know, Michael Card, uh, J- James, in his song, uh, his first kind of big hit, I Have Decided, Going to Live Like a Believer, uh, it says, when the world begins to see you change, don't expect it to applaud. I think sometimes people want to go to the cool churches and everybody applauds and stuff, but the real world's not like that. You don't live your Christian life in church. You live your Christian life. We, we applaud you for doing the right thing here, Connie. It's when you got to do it outside on business trips or at public school, at university. Man, that's, it's, it's trickier there, isn't it? Uh, number two, so we should expect opposition. We shouldn't let opposition stop us. Uh, because God is going to allow us to make the impact and influence He wants for us. And we need to remember, and I'll close with this, evangelism is a process. It's not a point act. Um, I'm sure somebody else came up with this illustration, but I like like it. You know, seeing somebody come to faith is like watching a football team. Last night, unfortunately, it wasn't OSU often enough. But it's like seeing a fo- football team uh, score a touchdown after a long offensive drive let's say we've got 12 or 15 plays and you've got 11 you got 11 people on the field on your team but only one guy jack scores the touchdown on one play 
But let's say you've got a 15-play drive where you're not really throwing very much. You're just making three or four or five yards of play, running back. So guess what? Uh, the, the offensive linemen, they're working hard 15 for 15 plays in a row, you know, but they don't score the touchdown. The quarterback, in this case, is just handing the ball off. He's not scoring a touchdown. The wide receiver, he's not throwing to the wide receiver. You know, you, you, on, on, guess what? On SportsCenter, they show the play with a winning touchdown score. They don't show all 15 plays that led up to it. But God, as far as the process of evangelism, is like the head coach orchestrating a long 15-play touchdown drive where you got a lot of influences. The person actually shares the gospel, the lights go on, a person believes. We tend to give them all the credit, but they're just the lucky running back who got to jump over the line, on the goal line. Uh, somebody who's in the youth group who doesn't come to faith, but they do when they're 30, but they remember Joe Franks, that real cool dude that came back and helped us in youth group, or that real cool deacon, Mike Palovic, who occasionally uh, would pat him on the head and say, you know, son, if you're going to play a sport, you got to play harder than what you're doing, or whatever you said to him, you know. Uh, yeah, and I think... Uh, I think there'll be a lot of surprises at the judgment seat where we get our rewards. You'll find out. Pam will find out. She said one nice thing to somebody or wrote him a little card. I'm praying for it. And you never see him again. And they leave town or they get mad at Brad and they go somewhere else. And then five years later, they come to faith. And they say, I can't even remember that lady's name. But when I read that card, it meant the world to me. And then boom, in heaven, they're going to say, Jesus is going to say, hey, hey, Josephine, here's the lady who wrote the card. You know, here she is. You know, so you're going to see all that. Now, when the coaches, you know, review the game the next week, they're going to look at all 15 plays. They're going to say, "Look at that guard, man! Every single time he totally blew out that guy." And he, and the, on the and we didn't use that, but on the goal line, we knew that was going to happen, so we ran that running back. We had the four-string running back, but it didn't matter because Jack Mitchell totally blew a hole up in white there, and he's the guy. Now, Jack Mitchell, the, the lineman, is not going to get any focus on Sports Center. Not going to get uh, the cheerleaders. are not going to call him Mr. Touchdown. Mr. Touchdown is the guy that carried the ball over the line. But in some cases, the guy that leads the person to the Lord is the guy who did the least amount of work. <laughs> we just they were just already ready for us, and and we got to share. So evangelism is a process. Don't be intimidated by opposition. Don't let it stop you. And never forget, even the little ripples that you may produce for the gospel for Christ can be used by God to produce amazing fruit. We may never see or know about this side of heaven. So be encouraged out there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to realize you want us to live and share the gospel consistently and to use words, maybe like John 3.16, when necessary and prudent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.